Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan, the gopher slayer Van Shank. And here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy, the protested swingle. Now, before I ask you, Jeremy, why they call you the protested swingle, I should also introduce a special guest that we have joining us today. That is Josiah the Inscripturator Leinbach. Now, Josiah, why do they call you the Inscripturator Leinbach? Like Jeremy, I did Bible quizzing for many years, and I I did fairly well. And some um, just this past week, I was told by a former Bible quizzing friend of mine that is a former Bible quizzer who is a friend of mine, that some other quizzers in her district had nicknamed me the inscripturator because of the speed at which I would quote, the amount of material which I would quote straight through while answering a question. <laughs> and so uh, apparently that's my new Avengers name or something like that. It reminds me of the Terminator. Well, and, and I, I like that you pointed out the speed because as I'm sure our listening audience will soon become acquainted like me, Josiah talks fast. So those of you who have your 1.5 speed to get through your podcast quicker when you're doing your morning commute, I apologize. Dial it back to one. You're probably used to that with me anyways. Uh, but there'll be some fast talking today, okay? Because um, John and I are both former Bible quizzers. Josiah, the inscripturator, former Bible quizzer. He's, so we talk fast. He's on a whole other level, though. A whole other level, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, so since we're on the subject of Bible quizzing, Jeremy, why did they call you the protested swingle? Yeah, so um, I'm here in uh, Ohio, um, answer judging for the national Bible quiz meet. Um, and uh, and Josiah and, and I are actually recording here in person. Josiah comes from the Great Lakes District here in Ohio. Um, and so John is, is sadly over in Oregon and not with us, except with us in spirit and through the magic of um uh udp communication over the internet uh that one that one was for like griffin perhaps uh, <laughs> uh tech joke but um but yeah so john is with us in spirit but josiah and i are here together so hopefully that's not too confusing if if we um talk in such a way during the podcast like i say you or whatever i'm talking to josiah probably because he's right next to me um so anyways, I'm the protested because I, I am an answer judge and we have had some some really good uh, challenges and protests against my um, infallible and inerrant decision making. Um, <laughs> <laughs> speaking ex cathedra here. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, <laughs> but uh, we actually. We, we so had... so you so you did not accept the protest then? Well, we had one protest, which was actually quite excellent. Um, it ended up being pretty 50 50 uh, between both sides and uh, the rules state that after 10 minutes the meet director actually has to arbitrate if if we haven't agreed by then and everyone was super polite and just put forward their opinion and then no one changed their mind pretty much um so we called the meet director in and he he resolved it and it was super polite and um you know there are heated protests i've been in them this wasn't one of them uh and uh so but yeah but i was protested so Felt that was worth mentioning. <laughs> now, I think even though we're here at, at the Bible Quiz Nationals and it's a it's a super big fun event, uh, I'm kind of more curious about your nickname this time, John. <laughs> 
Well, uh, so they, they call me the gopher slayer um, it, because we have had for uh, a number of weeks at our, our house here in, in rural Oregon uh, a gopher infestation. And um, uh, gophers are very cute but terrible um, for your lawn and the safety of your children um, because they will dig holes in your lawn uh, and eat your vegetables and, like, destroy your flowers and stuff like that. And then the holes that they leave behind are exactly the right size for, like, infant feet to, like, fall into and, like, cause broken ankles and things like that. And so it's just, like, really, really not good to have gophers in your yard, especially if you have kids running around. Uh, and so we've been we've been trying uh, mostly my landlady for, you know, weeks has been trying to get rid of these gophers of, you know, trying all the tricks to, you know, try to get them to move on. Um, you know, there, there's a bunch of stuff you can do to try to basically convince gophers that they don't want to be in your yard anymore. Um, and and basically just like kept not working, kept not working, kept not working. And so finally um, we got some traps um, and it, it fell to me to, to actually like set the traps and, and, you know, go in and, and get these gophers. And I'm very proud of myself. I, I tried one set of traps for a couple days and it really wasn't working out. And then I got a new trap and it was like, first try, got the, got one of the gophers. And then just, um, well, I just checked the trap about two hours ago and I just got another gopher. So I'm like, I'm two for two right now in terms of, of, of getting gophers and making my yard once again, safe for my son to play in. So I was expecting, so you gave us a story of like responsible, loving father and, and, and husband. And I was expecting like Rambo gear going out and just like killing gophers for like their skins or something. (laughs) Oh, oh, sure, sure. Well, it's, I mean, I should tell you that uh, the, the, the final trap that I used that did get the first gopher was my last attempt with traps. Um, and you can, you can ask my wife, my, the next thing is that I was, um, I was going to forge a gopher spear and then just like wait in the morning and just spear this thing. Cause I was so sick of him. Um, and then if that didn't work, I was going to borrow a, a 17 caliber rifle from one of my friends and just like hang out with a, hang out with a lawn chair and wait for him to poke his head up. <laughs> well, uh, we're, we're laughing, but I mean, you really do have a forge. I've seen things you've made with it. So maybe that'll be a nickname oh, on another yes. episode though. But <laughs> I know you're serious when you say this. So. Yes. Yes. Like I just recently bought a belt sander so that I'm able to actually grind bevels into my gopher spear. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all that aside, <laughs> now that we know a lot about John and what's on his heart <laughs> when it comes to God's creation, <laughs> we uh, we have 10 questions for our guest, Josiah, before we jump into the, the meat of the podcast, just so everyone can get to know him a little better. And Josiah is just... Super knowledgeable dude, good friend, and um, real fun to talk to. So. I would say, I think these questions actually constitute the meat of the episode. I think scripture might be the other meat in this case. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, well, we, we, we've we got a good, Josiah has a good presentation for us about a famous passage, which we'll get to. Um, so, <laughs> but yeah, but we, these questions may prompt a fair bit of discussion. So. All right. I'm ready. <laughs> Let's see what we got. All right. It's time for the meat. Um, question number one. <laughs> I'm already, I know you too well. I already know this could be like an hour-long discussion, Josiah. <laughs> Who is the most interesting figure in world history for you? Could be for good or bad reasons. Ooh. So many to pick from. I've studied a lot of history, a lot of history in depth. 
But recently, I've come to have a much, much higher regard for Queen Elizabeth I of England. She came to the throne at a very inauspicious time in English history, both domestically as well as internationally. And the fact that as a female monarch, facing all the various disadvantages that you, you deal with as a female monarch in the early modern period, she deployed a level of statesmanship and statecraft that I think is unparalleled, not just of her own time, but amongst many people in world history. Her ability to play rulers of European countries off of themselves in suit of her hand in marriage in order to preserve England's tenuous domestic peace, her ability to craft laws and whatnot in such a way that could actually encompass all people's opinions while not actually surrendering her own opinions to that of others. She was uh, a master of the early modern patronage system and really is the one of the big reasons that England coming into the 17th century is actually emerging as a world leader and isn't in fact uh, becoming a de facto Spanish colony like the what we call today the Netherlands or the United Provinces were. Well, so so you can already see why we have Josiah on. <laughs> he just, <laughs> just absolutely got got uh, got his his history down, knows his stuff. So I'm going to follow up with an entirely serious and definitely not. <laughs> I can't even say it with straight face. So <laughs> this is not one of the ten questions, but um, in the most uh, non politically charged way possible, could you compare Queen Elizabeth the first with the virtues of Kamala Harris? Oh, well, there's no comparison to be made, and I, I, will, I will leave it at that, uh, and, and I will leave it at that as ambiguous as possible. Okay, well, our friend Josiah here does not want to disappear in the middle of the night, so... I, I, will, I, will, I will only say that it seems hard to imagine Vice President Harris uh, giving the speech to the troops at Tilbury. <laughs> I also don't think she's a master of the patronage system, so that's at least one point that that uh, Queen Elizabeth has over her. <laughs> All right, duly noted. All right, certainly. Well, okay. before we wade too deep into dangerous territories here, I will take us to our second question. So, Josiah, what is the best hymn? Ah, uh, well, if I want to be very, very liturgical, I would say something like the Te Deum Laudamus. But uh, I won't. <laughs> I have no idea what that is, dude. Oh, the Te Deum Laudamus. It's a very ancient Christian hymn, which is featured in the morning prayer of the uh, liturgy for the Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican tradition from the 1662 onward through the 2019 from the Anglican Church in North America. Uh, I think it's probably, I think, I want to say fifth century. Uh, it contains a lot of very deep theological concepts uh, in it, drawn a lot of its words even from scripture and its final lines in the translation for the English from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer is, Lord, in thee have I trusted, let me never be confounded. And I find, and drawn from the Psalms, and I find just the, the poetic way that puts it to be beautiful. But if we're not going to go uh, ancient church <laughs> liturgy, liturgical hymns, we said one best hymn. No, okay. I'm, just, I'm just kidding. Right. <laughs> yeah, most people don't go don't go with the Tadam Ladamas. But I think one of the greatest is I bind unto myself today. It is Saint Pat's Saint Patrick's Breastplate, which was set to oh um, yes, which was set to music in the early 18th century, uh, late 18th century, early 19th century. It's uh, it takes approximately eight minutes to sing in its entirety, but it's <laughs> but the level of Trinitarian theology in it and of uh, 
soteriology as well is so instructive. I I find it very very moving every time I sing. Yeah, so soteriology. Uh, we've been told to explain terms on this podcast a little more. Um, so soteriology being the the theology of how salvation works, right? Um, yeah. Well, I I don't know either of these songs, so. John, I think we'll have to put this in the show notes so I can do my own research. We'll uh, we'll ask um, uh, uh, Josiah to send us some links for good recordings of both of these songs, and we'll put them in the show notes for people to enjoy. And just a quick one last nod to Queen Elizabeth. She also, one thing that's often overlooked about her is her very deep faith. You can read in a lot of her prayer journals, wrestling with a lot of things that everyone else wrestles with throughout their lives, uh, and a woman who deeply understood grace. Mm. Do you know what her favorite hymn was? That I don't know. Oh, we have to have her on the podcast, John. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. She's next. She's next. All right. Uh, question number three. Now, this one will be, we're testing this question out on you, but this will be funny to ask others. Um, so the question is, when did you become a Calvinist? Oh. Now, we plan on asking this to people who are not Calvinists who go on the podcast, <laughs> but I happen to know Josiah is one, so <laughs> we might get a more straightforward answer here. Uh. <laughs> Interestingly enough, it was while I was reading Roger Olson's book, Against Calvinism. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, we already have a great answer to this. Yes, Never mind. and it was largely because of, it, ironically, a statement that Olson made which he thought was supposed to be a zinger against the Calvinism which he was critiquing. And the Calvinism which he was critiquing uh, was a very caricatured Calvinism, uh, the kind of Calvinism that you, you find, a folk Calvinism that uh, is and a distorted understanding of what Calvin taught. But it was his line that he says, Calvin, the five points that people associate with Calvinism, number one, those five points historically don't come from Calvin himself. They come from the Synod of Dort. But he said that Calvin's institutes comprise and cover a whole host of subjects of which election and predestination are but very few. That And it was more of a throwaway line, but that struck me as rather odd, that you would name an entire ism for these five points from the Synod of Dort after Calvin had died. And so I did then extensive reading in John Calvin himself, and I came to realize that what Calvin taught as, and what the Reformers taught generally was really what I believed, and that the terms and the understanding of things that had been presented to me were not at all the terms that were presented uh, by the authors themselves. To say something that, you know, John Calvin or the reformers who fell into the, who fall into the reform tradition, that they they were painted more as hyper Calvinists, and they were painted as people who denied the existence of free will rather than affirming an understanding of free will that is in. Uh, that's compatible with divine sovereignty, that is compatible with a with man's total depravity. So it was really the fact that I came to see the caricatures that were painted of Calvin's soteriology. So again, the study of uh, <laughs> what what goes on in salvation, they were wrong. They were wrong in how they were presented, and they were much richer and fuller uh, and more glorious as presented by the reformers themselves than by their detractors. Well, there you go. Checkmate, uh, Arminians. Uh, yeah, no, it's like, it's true. It, um, yeah, so so we, we got some friends who are, were already ho hoping to get on the podcast to talk with us who aren't Calvinists. Um, and we've talked a little bit about uh, Calvinism on our podcast, but it's, you know, we do more Bible than theology. Um, but I, I think it's probably 
probably obvious to most of our listeners by this point that John and I are kind of in that camp as well. Um, based on our Roman series, <laughs> one of the other one of the other things I w- I would add as well with regard to Calvinism, I am also a huge fan, interestingly enough, of John Wesley. And when I read a fair amount of Wesley's sermons, and you read his discourses with Whitfield, one of the things that became very apparent to me is that what Wesley is more often critiquing in Whitfield or in other Calvinists of his day was not strictly their teaching on salvation because at the time, and this came with my study of history, at the time of the 18th century, words like Calvinism and Arminianism didn't necessarily refer to theological systems about salvation. There was a whole host of other things brought into it, like your beliefs in church liturgical practice, your understanding of ecclesiology, your understanding of something like discipleship and church membership. So when Wesley and the Wesley brothers are evangelizing, they had their own disagreements with Whitfield on church planting on a host of other things. And they broadly got lumped under this term Calvinism. And it often for Wesley was more of a rhetorical something that he saw as being deficient in both Whitfield, as well as many of the hyper Calvinists who were uh, actually pretty popular in Wesley's own day. Augustus Toplady was one and he he kind of like, affirmed his own election and the non-election of most other people. So <laughs> so I have much more respect for people who fall into the Arminian Wesleyan tradition of which I consider myself to partly be because I think people misunderstand Wesley even. Yeah, well, that's a that's an excellent topic. I mean, we could we could go more into the weeds. I also think Wesley was fantastic and and misunderstood. In particular, you hear people talk about his doctrine of of like perfection, his sinless perfection. Um which sounds like, okay, well, doesn't that that directly contradict First John? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And that's not what Wesley meant. <laughs> that's not no. what he meant by it. Um, and, and I've even heard him called a heretic by some, I guess, uh, enterprising Calvinists who don't understand him um, and what he was trying to say. You, you get, you actually hear what he said, and I kind of like... I don't know that I'd put it that way, but yeah, I pretty much actually agree with his position on it. You know? And the clincher for me with this whole Calvinism, Arminianism debate was when John Wesley was officiating George Whitfield's funeral. Are you familiar at all with this story? Oh, yeah. Is it the... Uh, mm, no, I maybe am not. So Wesley is officiating Whitfield's funeral, and afterwards up comes this woman who is very distraught, and she's talking to John Wesley, and she says to him that I, I have profound respect and love for both you and the the dearly departed Reverend Whitfield. But I must ask, understanding that you disagreed with him, do you believe he is in heaven? And Wesley took a pause, pause for a second, and then he looked at her and said, or she said, you, do you think you will see him in heaven? Sorry, that's the big point. She says, do you think you will see him in heaven? And he pauses and says, I do not believe I will, madam. And she's very saddened by this. And he says, because George Whitfield was such a bright shining star in the kingdom of God, he will be too near the throne for me to catch a glimpse. <laughs> and, and prior to his death, Whitfield had written Wesley and said something along the lines of, we have our disagreements here. And one day we'll both be kneeling before the same savior and we'll find out we were wrong on a whole lot of other stuff. And that's that's it's, an attitude I can get behind. That's <laughs> and we're helping yep. that by assuming all our guests are Calvinists, right, John? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. No. Totally. Continuing in the long tradition. <laughs> well, so uh, uh, we've mentioned a number of theologians so far, but for this fourth question right here, we have to know who is your favorite theologian. 
uh, caveat, it, they can't be a, a biblical author. No Paul answers. Oh, alas. <laughs> uh, it's, a hard, it's hard for me because I've read from so many various traditions, but I think I would have to say Thomas Cranmer, uh, the, the Anglican reformer, because Cranmer's, first Cranmer's theology is is very strong he's very he's he's reformed very clearly so i would argue against those who say otherwise because uh, there are those who say otherwise but also his understanding of the need for uh very precise and well thought out worship uh, the the amount of time and effort cranmer put into his prayer the the 1547 prayer book and then its subsequent revisions his understanding of how worship shapes the entire christian life is something that's really resonated with me and has had a great influence on how I understand worship as well as how I myself worship. And Thomas Cranmer, he was the, I mean, I'm not super familiar with him. He's the Anglican guy. Like, Did he write the Book of Common Prayer? Yes, the Cran yes Cranmer wrote the Book of Common Prayer, which was mostly from the Sarum Rite, which was a medieval Roman Catholic rite unique to England, particularly Salisbury. So it was already this very distinctly English thing. And he translated it into English, modified the portions of the theology where it was uh, deficient, uh, much more in line with the Reformation. But more than that, his essay at the beginning of this prayer book, which can be found throughout the prayer book tradition called uh, On Ceremonies Why Some Are to Be Retained and Others Not. And in this, he goes through the importance of tradition in the Christian faith, why we should have traditions, but then what constitutes good traditions and bad traditions, why he and the why he particularly maintained some in the prayer book, some in the liturgical practice of the Church of England, but why some he did not. And it offers, I think, one of the most comprehensive defenses of the Reformations, uh, of the magisterial Reformations understanding of tradition that I haven't been able to find anywhere else that mediates this road between Roman Catholicism, which baptizes and sanctifies tradition, and the the Anabaptist side, which kind of uh, casts off all tradition. And, yeah, so the Magisterial Reformation, by that, um, like, can you clarify who that is, what you're... Those refer to the reformers that were trying to uh, what they saw as just the need to reform, not overthrow. And it was mainly with regard to the teaching office of the church, which was called the magisterium. And they uh, uh, they critiqued, it, critiqued certain points of theology. So those people would include Martin Luther, John Calvin, Thomas Cranmer, uh, Peter Martyr Vermigli, uh, Martin Bucer, Philip Melanchthon. Lots of these guys, they were saying that the church had erred in recent centuries, that they had departed from the faith of the Catholic Church, which the Catholic Church meaning the universal church, by adding all sorts of things which were not to be found in Scripture or the early church, making them binding, and then also innovating new practices which were not found in the Scriptures or in the early church. The radical reformers said that we kind of need to cast off all of that because you have to throw out everything, it's all poisoned, and we need to start anew. Okay. Well, yeah, thanks for help, helping clarify that. Um, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and move on to the fifth question here. We have, um, all right, the best nonfiction book that was written by a non-Christian. So two nons in that question. It's got to be nonfiction, so it can't be your favorite novel written by some, you know, non-Christian. Um, and it can't be a believer. So. Oh, boy. 
Oh, that's hard. Hmm. It can even be one you disagree with, but like love reading. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's a that's a a very good question. Probably. Now this is going to be interesting on the question of of a believer. I would throw out there Aristotle's Politics. Oh, okay. Yeah, not a believer. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, not even a Jew and lived no, before I, no, Christ. No, I understand. Well, his, the reason I say it's interesting because historically you have these debates throughout the medieval uh, church as to whether or not the ancient philosophers were in fact saved in some capacity. So there's this long-standing question you see in uh, Dante's Inferno. At, well, yeah, they're at, in like a different circle. Yeah, they're yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so it's a contentious historical question. But Aristotle's politics. I, yeah, is, I, I don't really agree with with uh, those who say that they we, were. Me, me and Jeremy, oh, and me and Jeremy <laughs> accept your answer. But as the historian, I, I do have to acknowledge the historical question. Yeah. Oh, wait, you like history? Certainly. <laughs> Only slightly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're 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 definitely John and I are accepting Aristotle as a non-believer for Good. numerous obvious reasons. Yep. Historical questions aside, politics. Why right. is it so good? Aristotle's politics uh, is is one of the foundational works of Western political philosophy as well as the Western tradition. And in it, he talks about the need for humans to live in community. He talks about the good for which all things ultimately aim. It's uh, it is and how community shapes our lives. Humans were made for it. And then he goes through a lot of the ways in which that plays out both philosophically as well as practically. Well, I think we're going to move in for the second half of these questions to uh, uh, rapid fire answers here. So for question number six, you got to tell us Narnia or Middle Earth. Uh, I, I have flip flopped over this uh, a couple points in my life, but right now I'm on Narnia. Team Narnia. Team Narnia. Yes. Okay. Any particular reason? I... I, said, I mean, he done did yeah. say rapid fire. Didn't yeah, we? But that, lo, short answer <laughs> that there is so much with Tolkien and with Middle Earth that you have that you can read that I think you can get bogged down so much in understanding it as a history, which I do love history, but then that becomes reading the history, <laughs> the history of of a mythological land as opposed mm. to something like Lewis, where Lewis has an entirely different project. But it's it's a tough sure. call. Yeah, I agree with that. It's a tough call for sure. Um, I think I would go Middle Earth, but it is tough. All right, this one will be fun. Okay, so this has a little setup to it, all right? Question number seven. Martin Luther appears in your dream, okay? Like, maybe it's just a fake Martin Luther, or maybe it's like the real Martin Luther's spirit appears to you. And he says, hey, now that I've gone to be with the Lord, I realized I was wrong. And the worst book in the Bible wasn't actually James, like I said, it was blank all along. Now, what does Martin Luther say in your dream? In my dream? Oh, um, well. <laughs> and you can interpret this multiple ways. So it could either be your least favorite book of the Bible, or it could be what you think Martin Luther's secret least favorite book of the Bible. Secret was. least favorite book of the and Bible. And since you're a historian, I think that might be the route you go, but, but I'll, let you, I'll let you take it how you will. Yeah, um, his least favorite book of the Bible could possibly be Revelation or the Apocalypse of St. John, as it would have been more known, mainly because I think in reading it, he would, he just saw the papacy everywhere. 
So he would have been triggered by it. Yes, he would, <laughs> yes, he would see it as good in the end, but uh, the head of the Pope uh, will be bruised and it will rise again, but he shall be slain. Right. So he, yeah, because like Martin Luther would have seen the Pope as the Antichrist, essentially, right? Like uh, he would have seen did. him as, well, he, they, the, pay, the Pope himself was Antichrist. Oh, yeah, like the, in the first John sense. Yes, like in the first John sense. Yes, many Antichrists, but the institution and the office of the papacy would be the beast of Revelation. Oh, interesting. Martin yeah. Luther was a historicist, and so he saw the book of Revelation as prophesying the entirety of church history uh, rather than just solely future events or mostly events around the fall of Jerusalem. So he saw all sorts of historical events as pointing to developments within the papacy and the Roman church particularly. Okay, yeah. We haven't done an episode on this, but uh, maybe we should. Because um, it's interesting that, that that word antichrist, a lot of people misunderstand it. I think, you know, left behind doesn't help us here, but... But anti in in Greek that prefix or, or that uh, it's a prefix, right? It's yes. like a yeah. So so anti we think of that as meaning in opposition to, but actually the most normal sense of the word anti in Greek is in place of something that takes the place of another thing. So it's actually not you know I, I think the reformers got a little fanciful with their 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 talk of the, the antichrist and their the you know some of their views on the papacy, but in place of Christ is a more sensible argument against the papacy yeah. <laughs> than, than, than the whole like revelation uh, left behind thing where, mm-hmm. where everyone's, you know, planes are crashing. <laughs> you know, that kind of viewpoint when, when you see like, Oh, well the Pope calls himself the vicar of Christ. And if he's not, then that does kind of mean he's taking the place of Christ. Right. Like, yes. <laughs> so that's kind of an interesting aside there. Um, well, there you go, folks. You don't even need to listen to that episode. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if we'll ever do a Revelation episode. To be frank, I. I don't. I. <laughs> do we really want to get into That'd it, John? <laughs> no, no. I, I'm not sure we do. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Once once we hit uh, 10 million subscribers, or you know, it, insert arbitrary metric here, right? Yeah. Tell your um, friends but, if so, you really want to know whether the number of the beast is a barcode scan or not. Yeah. <laughs> So we've we've gotten uh, 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 Luther's uh, uh, opinion on the worst book in your dream, uh, but now we want to know question number eight: What's the most underrated book of the Bible? So, like your favorite that isn't popular. Ah, uh, that is a tough call between two, and those two would be either Deuteronomy or Proverbs. Deuteronomy because based. <laughs> yeah, I agree actually. So go on. <laughs> yeah, De- Deuteronomy because I think the church today, uh especially in America has a very low esteem of law, uh of the law uh in scripture, and we have the law gospel distinction and we focus a lot on gospel and grace, which is good, but there is also law. And the and Deuteronomy very clearly is the law. That's what it means. And more so even because when we go to a passage like Matthew chapter 4, when Christ is uh, rebuking the devil with scripture, people love to use that as, oh, look, Jesus uh, loves and quotes scripture. But if you notice, he quotes Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He's quoting the Old Testament law. That is the, the ethic of Christ that he uses to understand sin. So the three uses of the law are incredibly relevant in our own day because they're relevant at all times. And Proverbs, because I think people look at the book of Proverbs so uh, uh, as this atomic book where it has uh, all of these just isolated 
little nuggets of wisdom, which they are little nuggets of wisdom, but you, when you understand ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature and you see what the author of Proverbs is doing, and when we understand that historically prudence and wisdom being two of the, the esteemed virtues for not just statesmen and big and leaders politically as well as in the church, but just among lay people generally, there was a very high emphasis placed on wisdom, and that wisdom was drawn from Proverbs, especially as it regards political rule. There was a 16th century political theorist named Bossuet who wrote a book called Politics Drawn from the Words of Holy Scripture. Now, he was using it to defend absolute monarchy, which uh, doesn't really mean what people think it means today, but he draws a whole lot from Proverbs and says that Proverbs has many statements, many principles with regard to kingship, not just individually, but through the meta-arc of the book itself. That would be worth understanding. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, Proverbs is, a lot of people miss this, but like the, my son who's referenced in Proverbs, it's a king talking to his son. Right? Yes. Like that's the context. Yeah, and it. that's the point. Okay, yeah, I wasn't sure if I was on the right track there. That yeah, and <laughs> that, and that, so you have the king speaking to his son, You also and you also have the, the argument that it's three kings because you have uh, the, the original speech, Solomon, and then you have Agur and Lemuel, and there's the mm. thought that it's three different kings, or maybe it's three different names for Solomon conveying three different things, and that you have this structure of, at the beginning, contrasting the, the two women. You have Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom, which are contrasted with the adulteress and the wife of your youth, and it culminating in Proverbs chapter 31 with the virtuous woman, the queen, who is uh, who's very industrious, very active, and so I think in that way, it's not just a model for kings. It's a model for your your own life. Totally. Well, those are great choices. Deuteronomy is probably what I would say if I were asked that question. I, I think it's uh, people rag on Deuteronomy. I've heard people say it's boring for people say, oh, it's just a bunch of laws. Like, did you miss the I mean, yes. Did you miss the big portions of like grace? Like and just like the this... oh, grace is found <laughs> so much in Deuteronomy, more so than people would think at first glance. For sure. All right, well, let's move on to uh, question number nine. Uh, similar question here. Most underrated doctrine. So something that you think is important to the Christian life um, that just doesn't get talked about. I don't think that uh, that ecclesiology gets talked enough about. All right, so soteriology, we define that. Ecclesiology. The uh, ecclesiology comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means the gathering or the assembly, and it means the theology of the church, theology of church structure in some cases. And that's what I mean more here, that there's, uh, we often don't make uh, a lot of discussion around things like what it means for someone to be ordained. Now, of course, that does have different connotations in different traditions, but the New Testament speaks of offices and the understanding of the office that is being administered and how that relates to the broader church as a whole, the church militant, meaning the church on earth, as well as the church triumphant, the church in heaven, and that God does give these offices for the ordering of his church, for the governing of his church, and for the building up of his church. Yeah, that's a great answer. I agree, and I, but I would almost go the angle of like, um, perhaps the, like, not, not necessarily the ordering of the church, but the importance of it. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, that would fall into that same category. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it does, yeah, <laughs> we're trying not to get too political. I already mentioned Kamala Harris, but, but the the, the ease with which most Christians accepted the governmental shutdown of their churches as though worship, is, the public worship of Jesus Christ together as a gathering is not a command in Scripture and an absolutely essential 
and I use that word intentionally, an essential component of the Christian faith. Um, it, it says a lot to me, I think, about why you would even why you would give that answer. It's like, it, what are we just like isolated Christians doing our own thing, not in community together? Like, that's not at all what the apostles are writing about right. in the New Testament. So I'm with you there, man. Um, all right, John, want to hit us with the final question here? All right, last question for you. So what is your favorite podcast? Uh, there is a not, right answer to this, by the way. The John 315 podcast. Oh! Yes! <laughs> Great, well, we don't have to ding, roast ding, you. Ding, 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 ding. You've passed the test. <laughs> I mean, if, you have, if you have a more specific answer, like, you know, that one episode of the John 315 podcast. God, it's the whole thing <laughs> Can you, can you give us maybe your top three favorite moments, maybe? <laughs> this is this is like when you have a friend who like says, oh, yeah, I love that band. And you're like, oh, yeah, what, what's your favorite song? <laughs> what's what's your favorite five songs? And they're like, they only know like the, the hit single. <laughs> Josiah did tell me he's listened to our podcast on several occasions. So we, we know we don't have a complete newcomer. No. <laughs> okay, well, with that being said... Uh, <laughs> Since we got the correct answer out of out of him, uh, I think we could go ahead and and, and move on um, to the meat, the other meat that is of, of the day. It's time for the other meat. All right, so um, for today's scripture, uh, we have not just one verse, but a whole passage uh, that that's pretty famous. Um, and I'm really dying to hear this argument. I, we don't have any, like, we've been given nothing ahead of time on this, which I'm excited for because we're going to get to talk about this live. Um, but we're looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan today. And uh, Josiah has, has uh, some thoughts on it to share with us. So tell us, what is this parable really about? And perhaps, if, you know, I don't know if you want to read it and interpret it as you go or, or how you want to do it. But uh... I think most people are familiar with the passage, so we won't uh, read through it, but we're going to be touching on points of it as we go. I'll first start by saying that the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is what we call this story that's found in Luke chapter 10, has been a subject of rich study throughout church history, and you've had a whole host of interpretations from that. It's allegorical about man's fall and sin and his redemption in Christ, which the church father Origen put forward, to all sorts of other interpretations through the Middle Ages uh, regarding the, you know, some sort of a, a neighborly ethic, which has been very common. But I stumbled across a throwaway line in a commentary by Matthew Henry on this passage when Matthew Henry noted that there was this odd detail that Christ says about the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, and the, the odd detail Henry notes is the fact that this road actually existed and was traveled by a lot of people, especially religious leaders in Jerusalem at the time. And so Henry says it's quite possible that this story actually happened in some way. Well, that got me to thinking, is this, in fact, a parable at all? Is this a true story? So I began to look at the passage with that potential in mind, and I approached it as a historian, trying to find the kinds of little details in the text that might give me a clue. One of the first clues is that this, what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan, is never introduced with the the statement that then Jesus told them this parable, or something along those lines. All the rest through Luke, every other parable or something that fits the narrative of a parable 
begins with some sort of introduction that then he told them this parable or they or the disciples even it would ask what does this parable mean and it has a clear kind of uh symbolic structure where you can look and say oh clearly it's symbolism it's very generic very vague and it and it uses very few details but this is unique in that it contains a lot of very specific details the first is the fact that it says a man was going down from jerusalem to Jericho, so going down from Jerusalem, which is up high uh, in the Judean plateau, down to Jericho, to real cities that are mentioned. Nowhere else in a single parable in Christ does he mention real cities for any sort of location. It's usually like a faraway country or something like that. Secondly, it mentions specifically a priest, a Levite, a Samaritan. These are real offices of ministration in the temple and in Jerusalem. These are real ethnic groups that are being discussed. Again, details not found elsewhere. It gives a very specific cost of two denarii for the innkeeper, which he's paid by the Samaritan, which was the cost roughly of a day's labor for a day laborer, as well as the expected cost for something like this undertaking of taking care of a man who's been beaten by robbers. All of that kind of jumped out at me to say, all right, there's a lot of odd level of detail here, which makes me think that this story actually happened. There's no other way I can explain that level of detail unless we see that this is a story that actually happened especially considering that on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, many robbers and brigands and bands of, of roving vagabonds did lurk about and did actually beat up people. We have records of this historically. It was a very dangerous road to travel. Literally, you could, you could be killed traveling this road. Then, after seeing all of these details and thinking that the story is in fact true, so Henry, uh, in his commentary, he was right, and, but he was actually even needed to go a step further. It's not just that it happened in some way. I think that the story itself is actual history. This did happen. And the big twist I put on it is I think that this happened to the teacher of the law to, or to the lawyer uh, that comes to Christ and says, who's asking, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Who is my neighbor? I think that he is the man who was beaten and left for dead. Now, that's a plot twist I didn't see coming <laughs> when you told oh, me about man. this. Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, like, is this the, you know, the, the person who walks by on the side? Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I was thinking it might have been it might have been the priest or the Levite, yeah. Now, the reason I think this has to do with a bit of interpretation on the the motives of the lawyer who's asking these questions as well as his follow-up question and then his response first christ uses his office of prophet to convict people of their sin we see that in john chapter 4 when christ is talking to the samaritan woman at the well interestingly you know samaritan woman uh not saying there's a connection but it's just it's kind of cool that at the at the well Christ tells her when she says uh, that she has no husband, he says, you're right, because you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. And she says, Lord, I see that you are a prophet. We see a similar case, I think, in the story of the rich young ruler, which we call it the story of the rich young ruler because that's how Matthew describes it in Matthew 19. But when we look at the parallel passage in Luke, it doesn't say a rich ruler. It just says, a ruler, and there's nothing in that word and the context of it being used in the New Testament that denotes some form of wealth. It just means a position of authority. Could be within the synagogue, could be an elder. 
But even more sparsely detailed is Mark, where Mark just says a man knelt before him. That's important because all three parables or all three of these uh, these stories of the rich young ruler that we call kneeling before Christ and Christ saying, go sell your possessions and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. They all conclude with some iteration of the man leaving because he had great wealth or he had many possessions. The fact that Matthew says this up front seems to uh, kind of lead the witness that we think, oh, okay, well, because everybody knew that he had great wealth and it's very obvious Matthew says it and then he goes away because he's sad because he has great wealth. But that's not necessarily assumed in the other portions of the text. So one of the reasons I think that this guy goes away convicted because he has great wealth is in fact that, number one, it's not all that obvious that Christ is able to say something to him that is indicative of the fact that he does have money. And number two, the fact that he loves that money that convicts him. And that's Christ's role as prophet convicting him so that it's more kind of uh, you could think of it as that he went away because he did, in fact, have great wealth. With that in mind, we see that his reaction, a very emotional, invested reaction, which Christ notices and then proceeds to continue explaining uh, uh, and creating a bit of a sermon on the idea of wealth. We see a similar kind of response here. It says in the text in verse 25 that, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice that same question is asked by the rich, by what we call the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. Christ then says uh, to, in response, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So this, again, another parallel, Christ putting it back to the speaker of the question in Matthew 19 and in the parallel passages, Christ puts it back to the man before him by saying, what, why do you call me good? No one is good, but God puts it back in his court and then directs him to the law. And the implication in both of these passages in the response is that they've kept it and that they feel like they are in fact righteous because they both have some sort of rejoinder. The rich young ruler says, all these I have kept since I, uh, all these I've kept since my youth. And you have the lawyer here in Luke chapter 10 saying he wanted to justify himself. So he's slightly convicted, but he's going to put forward a, a different face. And he says, well, who is my neighbor? He's trying to create some sort of qualified phrase. And then Christ proceeds to tell him this, as I already explained, what I believe is a real story. The question then arose in my mind is what kind of real story with Christ in the role as prophet could possibly con uh, convict this guy such that his final response is the correct one, that the one who showed him mercy. And Christ's response of then you go and do likewise. If this man, as I was trying to think, well, was he in fact one of the, the priest or the Levite walking by? He's, he's not the priest because he's a lawyer and those are distinct offices. So I wrote off the top that he's not the priest. The question is, could he be a Levite? That's possible. But then the question arose in my mind, would this story really convict him? Would Is he recalling this man who's on the side of the road? Because he might as well have just passed by him. It says that they stripped him and left him for dead. He's likely thrown off the side of the road. He's maybe not visible. For sure, he's naked, which means that he's not easily distinguishable as a Jew unless you're checking to see if he's circumcised. But then the thought, and finally the thought came, 
What if, in fact, he is the man who's left for dead? That could be something where nobody would know that except this man. And it would be a humiliating thing for this guy to have to admit that he was rescued and saved by a Samaritan. All of this started to build in my mind until f and f until well, let's can, oh, can we yeah. put a, a little pin in that and sure. like because because we hear the word Samaritan and we think oh great because they're the good Samaritan right you know but uh, some might not know like who were Samaritans to Jews who were these group of people Samaritans were an ethnic group who were partly descended from Jews who remained in the land of Israel during the exile, but then also all of the various groups of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and everyone else who moved in. So they were seen by the Jews as half-breeds. They weren't really Jewish. And they also had very different worship practices, different interpretations of the law. That's They actually had a different law. Yes. <laughs> they had their own yeah. version of the Torah. And it's actually a fascinating you know, story because we, we use that that version of the law um to we compare it to the real law actually as part of like determining what the law is in textual criticism that's kind yeah. of a different story but but they had a heretical version of the torah yes that and then you add on to the fact that in the new testament itself submit the samaritans are painted very negatively you have the one leper who comes back to christ and it throws kind of uh, when all the ten who are healed and says and this one was a samaritan and christ uses that as a rebuke to the disciples and to all who are around saying that this samaritan whom you consider to be uh, a heretic he recognizes the grace that was given to him you see the samaritan woman at the well it, it says in the text for jews have no association with samaritans but christ went out of his way it, oddly enough, to go to Samaria because he had a divine appointment with this woman. And we see the Samaritan or the, and the Canaanite woman who comes before Christ. There's th These people are viewed very negatively by Jews. Jews would go up to 20 or 40 miles out of their way just so that they didn't have to pass through Samaritan villages. And so, it's, imp it's important to note, I think, um, like, and while, while it was excessive um, and perhaps kind of racist, frankly, in a sense— yes. This was not without justification. Like there, there were elements of the Jewish disdain for Samaritans that would be not dissimilar to how we don't we don't agree with Mormonism. Right. Right. <laughs> like it was definitely a heretical offshoot of Judaism. Like, yeah. And it's for, not really. <laughs> and for someone like this lawyer, the, as the thought came, came, occurred to me, for him to have, if he were to admit that he was rescued by this Samaritan, by this heretic that is looked down upon uh, in every possible capacity, socially, uh, personally, that that would be the end of his of his any sort of social standing that he has, which clearly he still has in asking this. When we read his final response, I think it really gets to the heart of it that when Christ says, "Which of these three do you think?" proved to be a neighbor to the one who is in need. Christ has taken this whole question of the lawyer about who is my neighbor to who proved to be a neighbor to the one who show, uh, to the man who was left for dead. Just like with the Samaritan woman at the well, Christ takes her question about worship, about should we worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem? He takes that whole question and he turns it back around to her own experience to show her his own grace to her. And here the lawyer's response is the one who showed him mercy. If you think about it, that's somewhat an odd response to give to the question, which of the three? 
prove to be a neighbor to the one who is in need. He doesn't say the third guy. He doesn't say the Samaritan. He gives this very specific, uh, but oddly intimate, the one who showed him mercy. And then Christ's response is, you go and do likewise. And so when we have also the fact that in Luke and in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, I think all of this points to the lawyer having been the man left for dead by the side of the road, who's rescued by the Samaritan, and Christ in his office of prophet, very graciously exposing that fact to him. And this guy can't, gives this answer, which shows he gets, in many ways, I think, the, the, the point of Christ revealing this to him. And that's why Christ can tell him, you go and do likewise. Just like Christ tells uh, in John 8 to the woman caught in adultery when he says, is there anyone to condemn you? She says, none. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. The admonition to someone who recognizes grace. So I disagree with the commentators who say that when he says the one who showed him mercy, it's because he can't bring himself to say the Samaritan. I think it's because he truly gets it. And Christ's admonition at the end really demonstrates that fact. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, so so the structure of the response, uh, we got this whole conversation. There's a few back and forths here. And then the meat of it is that is that big paragraph where Jesus tells, quote unquote, the parable, right? Yes. <laughs> Which is, you're arguing is not one. But but there's there's all these little clues in in the back and forth. I think that's interesting. Um, yeah, that's kind of the crux of the case. Uh, there are a lot of other details I can get into. Oh, because oh, one of the other final big things why I think this is the case, and it relates to that initial detail about the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. That road was traveled very often by the religious officials in Jerusalem because when they were not on service in the temple or when they were not uh, on duty as uh, in the temple courts, or when they weren't practicing or teaching, many of these people, uh, many of these men, had what you'd think of as uh, weekend homes, or maybe in the American context, a cabin, someplace to get away in Jericho, away from the hub, uh, the hub of blue of it all. This guy as a lawyer, as a teacher of the law, would have almost certainly had such a house in Jericho. He almost certainly would have traveled that road. And the fact that it says a priest and a Levite passed by meant that this guy was traveling alone. So nobody would have known that this had happened to him unless Christ, uh, who is sovereign over all and from whom nothing is hidden, could make this known to him. Hmm. Well, <laughs> I'm kind of speechless, John. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I was I was joking before we started recording that I was going to take it upon myself to just like sandbag the whole episode and be like, yeah, but what about this? What about this? And I'm like, well, actually, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. no, seems legit. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard it before. But yeah, I mean, I think I think it's um, I think there's a lot to to unpack. I, I mentioned like with the the back and forth of it and, and i think there, there's a lot to be said about about thinking about the structure of what's being said and the patterns that we see elsewhere in luke's gospel and elsewhere in the gospels in general and um i i, I gotta be honest i kind of like that you've given me even more reason to think that there's a happy ending to this parable because i i really i kind of want to root for the guy <laughs> you know yeah like i like to believe that because the rich young ruler story really makes me sad <laughs> um, yeah. because he goes away, you know, cause he goes away sad and won't repent and, and all this, 
But uh, but you want to believe that this guy, like he he's trying to love the Lord, you know, like he he really he, he's like Paul, right? Before he was converted on the road to Damascus, he he thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks he's right with God, and and so it's nice to see Jesus. Jesus is just this master communicator. He penetrates at this guy's heart with with you know th- these questions these questions. I like how you point out that he turns the question around on him because it, it's almost like. <laughs> I wonder if Jesus has this mentality of like, who is this guy to question me, God in human flesh, right? God questions man. It's not the other way around. You know, God tells Adam, who yeah. told you that you were naked, right? That's like God's strategy kind of with us. Is yeah. he, he reveals our heart by, by telling us, by uh, demanding we explain ourselves, right? That, <laughs> yeah. And that is especially evident here. Because when Christ directs him first to the law, something he should know, which he quotes through and Christ, when he says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live, he's already made him guilty. And that's why that phrase he wanted to justify himself is so important. He under, I think you can read he wanted to justify himself in one of two ways. I think you can read it in this very negative pharisaical light of, well, he wanted to justify himself and say, well, who is my neighbor? But I think you can give a bit more charitable reading to it in that Yes, he wants to show that he's justified, but it is it only because he wants to have some outward display of righteousness? I don't think so, because, again, of this response and the fact Christ reveals it to him. And the historic interpretation of this, like I mentioned with that allegorical interpretation by Origen, really somewhat backs this up, because Origen's understanding is that the man who is beaten and left for dead is Adam, and it's uh, and it's all those who are born in Adam and in sin, and that Christ is the Samaritan, the unlikely one, the you know the Isaiah fifty three servant who's despised, who comes and redeems Adam and takes care of him at his own cost. And Origen has this really long, really good explanation. Uh, not that I entirely agree with it, but his allegorical interpretations are at the very least illuminating. So I see that idea that even in the early church, there was an understanding that this there's something gr- with redemption happening here. And the only way I can explain that redemption and the fact that when Christ gives these, like a quote, when he says that the, tell, the Samaritan tells the innkeeper to take, he says, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. I would have to think that that line, why you would be so specific, he says, when I come back, like assuming this guy's still going to be there, that maybe this guy overhears that line. And like that line is a clincher here for him that maybe he's thinking, is Christ really talking about me? Is Christ really talking about me? And he gets this line because it's right after that Christ says, who proved to be a neighbor? That would not have convicted him if he just walked by because he does, he hates Samaritans. There had to be something in this story. about The, the Samaritan proved that he was that he was more righteous than the priest and the Levite. And he proved that to this man. Yes. And if, that's why it would be convicting. Yeah, it was not. Yeah. It would not have been convicting if he had just walked by because he could have easily dismissed that. But it's the fact that the Samaritan helped him. The man that he saw as a radical and unrighteous saved him from death. And Christ telling him, you go and do likewise. I think the implication being, as was done to you. Wow. Yeah. And, no, and certainly. Go ahead, John. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, and what I was going to say is, um, and I really love the point that you bring up of reinter or, or I guess, um, taking the interpretation of his rule uh, of, of his response that like, you know, the one who had compassion on him of, you know, not him trying not to say Samaritan because of, you know, some, you know, like racist conception that he has in his own mind, but of this like identifying with the, 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 the character in this story, um, 
and I, I think I think that's a really important point that you're bringing up here and something that is like definitely connecting for me right now of this because like in the response that he's given there um you know setting aside the issue of of him identifying um it's also him actually articulating the relevant action of the person you know and so it's like whereas in the story the way that Jesus is telling it you know he's saying ah oh, this you know levite you, you know uh uh the samaritan you, you know like using uh, uh, titles of people's like membership with groups, but the response that the man has is, uh, you know, it's the 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 one who had compassion on him, and so it's like he's the the relevant feature uh, to the 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 lawyer here is not the person's like group membership, but the like particular action that he he took. And so, like, so I guess the the reason why I'm pointing that out is I I sort of want to bolster your point and you know say that I'm agreeing with you that that really I think this is him identifying like th- th- this is this is him acknowledging to Jesus that he actually gets the point of what's going on you know that it would it would almost be if he said the Samaritan it's like he's he's still not getting it but since he is in fact identifying the relevant feature of having compassion that. He, no, no, he he does actually get the point. That yeah. that even becomes more clear when we see that when he says the one who showed him mercy, that in Hebrew, mercy, the mercy of God, hesed, or hesed, I can't remember how it's pronounced. Chesed. Chesed, that's right. Yep. We get yeah. the chesed. <laughs> it, it literally translates into something like loving kindness. That, that That's something you wouldn't want to say about a Samaritan. They, were, they weren't supposed to be that. And yet the fact is he gets that and that word. It doesn't hesed, fit the narrative. Yeah, and the chesed of of God, which is a theme all throughout the Old Testament, this lawyer in saying that is attributing to the Samaritan way, way more than anybody I think in his context would have been comfortable to have attributed to him. And I think it's only explainable Mm. if something about this story convicted him and the only way the story could convict him. Uh, given his status and given his background is he was that guy who to whom the Samaritan showed mercy. I'm curious. I, I'm curious to talk a little more about this phrase, like "proved to be a neighbor." Right? Um, I've always found that interesting in this passage. Obviously, you mentioned that his question is, "Who is my neighbor?" Right? And it's and it's almost like G- Jesus's punch to him at the end. The big point is like basically you're asking the wrong question. <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of the the what what the um what the conclusion of the of the story is because because he doesn't ask him at the end so which of the three or, or, or you know who is the neighbor of the man you know but he says who proved to be a neighbor in other words this this con, this conception in the law of needing to love your neighbor as yourself was never intended to be limited by a group of people we could identify as our neighbor instead the question is are you obeying that law by actually loving people right yep. and everyone ought to be the neighbor of of the believer right um you know <laughs> so i think that's kind of the the idea is that um you know at, at least at least until um i mean if someone's like literally trying to kill you or whatever then maybe they're in a different category than neighbor right but if it's simply someone of a different of a different uh you know uh group of people different religious background different anything just someone made in the image of God, they're your neighbor, right? <laughs> like you, you need to love them. Um, and and it's he's revealing this little like perverse desire in, in us to read something like love your neighbor as yourself. And instead of asking um, like, 
am I doing that? Am I loving people? Right. We ask like, well, what is the the limits of who our neighbors are? Right? So who don't yeah, I have or, to or love? Or who <laughs> is entitled to me loving them? Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And the, the implication of the lawyer's response when he says the one who showed him mercy, when Christ says who proved to be a neighbor is the Samaritan implicitly affirming that the Samaritan is in fact his neighbor because he says who proved to be a neighbor. The one who showed him mercy. Right. His, his, and so therefore I need to love him now too because he is my neighbor. Yes. He proved to be, right? Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And that Interesting. Word, one, of, one, of, one of the things that sticks out to me there is the, um, you know, this story is uh, uh, this, this, this narration that Jesus is giving us. Maybe I'll use that terminology here. The, the, this narration that Jesus is giving is in response to the, the, the the man's heart you know that he says you know it it tells us that you know he's seeking to justify himself and he asks you know who is my neighbor and so i think it's interesting that that's then the way that jesus you know jesus isn't actually answering the question that he verbalizes but he is actually addressing the man's heart because the man is seeking to justify himself like there is a proving that he is wanting to 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 do and so Jesus tells him, you know, basically, in effect, Jesus is, is answering the question that his heart is asking of, no, like, how do you, like, you know, who proved to be a neighbor to this person? So, like, there there isn't evidencing that this, you know, that, that, that you can partake in. And so it, it, even as the man is, like, seeking to evidence for himself, like, to justify himself, and now Jesus is telling, you know, how to evidence to other people your neighborliness, if I could, you know, maybe make that word up. I don't know. Did that make any sense? Did it did. It did. I'd, I'd actually add to not just evidencing your neighborliness, but but evidencing that you have been shown mercy because the the one who has been shown mercy ought to do likewise to others. Right. I mean, that's a meta theme of, of yes. Christ. Right. Like that's the whole parable of the, of the, the man who was forgiven his great debt. Um, and goes out and, and, and chokes the fellow servant for a much smaller debt. And Jesus is like, you know, it, that, that servant doesn't understand the depth to which he's been shown mercy, right? Because he won't show it to others. And so it's almost like, like you know, yeah. Jesus, this is a similar challenge, kind of like, well, you were shown mercy then, right? So, so you also have to have to show mercy and that's kind of where yeah like i like that you point out that the that origins allegorical approach which is often so lambasted by biblical scholars today and not for unwarranted reasons because the allegorical interpretations of the parables get really wacky but but in this particular instance it'd be hard not to see um something in like take care of him and whatever more you spend i will repay you when i come back you know just kind of like so yeah this the 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 cost is being paid and more will be paid you know if the, yeah. like if, if more something is something something the deposit grace. of the spirit and the glorification of our bodies <laughs> it's hard not to see a little bit of something in there you know and it doesn't mean that there's not a literal interpretation of the right. parable as well and, and with the plus with the word prove is when it says who proved to be a neighbor if this were purely a hypothetical scenario contrived by Christ, it could be very easily shot down with uh, this guy's a lawyer. He knows how to poke holes in an argument and he could say, well, you know, we need some more details here. Well, what if I propose to you this hypothetical? <laughs> he can't propose any sort of critique to the story because Christ says who proved. And if I remember correctly, 
the use of this word prove in the Greek throughout the New Testament and in a lot of the extant literature in Greek philosophy has this very concrete, like definitive notion. It's used a lot in Plato and that you have, it's who proved what, what is beyond the shadow of a doubt. And if it were only a hypothetical thought experiment about morality, you could you could reconstruct some new one, but the the ethic of the Christian life, and that's why I love this so much, is that the ethic of the Christian life of loving your neighbor isn't a hypothetical. It's not an abstraction. It is something which is very real and very gritty in a lot of the details and uncomfortable in many ways. But that's because we live in the real world, and that that real world which has been redeemed. That's interesting because it reminds me of a conversation you and I were having earlier today off air about like how how there's practical details and and finding finding um figuring out how one's ideology one's theology um interacts with the details of the real world is a complicated process and you said something interesting Josiah when you said um like that we have to have a lot of knowledge of particulars and you were talking about history because we were talking about political uh, realities and strategies and you were saying like it's really good to know a lot of particulars about things because you need to know particulars in order to better understand more general um, concepts and how to apply things in our own circumstance and so it is interesting to see see these particulars right this is how this person showed mercy these are the kinds of things we ought also to do however we're not going down from jerusalem to jericho at all um this man may not have run into this circumstance in the exact same way in the future but he's expected to be able to apply the lesson he learns from this samaritan in the rest of his life you know and, and there's similar ideas in scripture of uh, you know i like to say um with you know the idea of husbands love your wives how what does that mean how how the heck am i supposed to follow that like that's going to depend on who my wife is that's going to depend on who i am as a husband that's going to depend on what country i live in and in what era how much money we have how much you know, there's so many particulars that are going to influence what it actually looks like to love my wife so when peter and paul write these things we're expected to grasp the principle which isn't that difficult but then how how do we apply those in our lives? Well, that requires a little bit of uh lady wisdom, like you were mentioning earlier, right? A little bit of a little bit more than just what 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 Paul writes in, in Ephesians 5 or whatever, you know. Um but so we have to go and do likewise, like this this Samaritan who who showed mercy. How how do we do that? Like what do we <laughs> what does that look like in our own lives? Um and that's kind of a life. No, no, challenge. totally. Yeah. And <laughs> And I would I would add to that as well that it's it I think it's important that that Christ gives him a like a command of action to like go and do likewise you know this is not um, you know the the man asks a cerebral question and Christ gives him a concrete command um, and you know in in the same way of like you know husbands love your wives that it's like in in some sense that is cerebral like you know oh what what does what does it mean to love you know really <laughs> yeah that but would be like the it's like the ju- desiring to justify myself well what's love you know <laughs> anyway yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know but it's like but we should hear that as a you know as the the command to action of you know in as christ has loved the church and implicit in that is go and do likewise. Well, and gave himself up for her, right? So, so there's an example mm-hmm. there. G- give yourself up, 
it's it's almost kind of a similar similar pattern, you know. So now that doesn't mean you got to go to the cross. That's not how it works. But how do you literally lay down your life for your wife in a metaphorical way? Right? <laughs> right? You know, that's kind of a contradiction. But well, so I, I also I I just have to ask this because um, I'm curious what you think about this, Josiah. While we have you. So I know that there's also speculation about this par- uh, quote-unquote parable of the rich man and Lazarus, um, whether that's actually a parable or a real story. And that one gets talked about a lot more than this one as a real story, potentially. And, and I think I can immediately understand why, because the name Lazarus, right, there's, it's actually a name that shows up. Of course, you get into like the father Abraham, uh, you know, guiding Lazarus to heaven while the rich man is in hell. And that gets to be more like, okay, nobody on earth could have seen that part of it. Right. You know, but I'm curious what you think about that parable. I I think it's, it's a potentially similar instance. I'm a little more reticent only because I can't have concrete details like I can with the road from Jerusalem to Jericho to Denarius, uh, all of these really specific things that I can latch onto and find evidences for. We don't have that with the realm of the eternal, with the, the spiritual realm. But I'm inclined to think that there's good evidence that it is real, if only because I, from what I've read, the early church placed a lot of stock in terms of its understanding of heaven and eternity and what happens after death on that parable. So that even if it's not a strict parable, it was, uh, or even if it's not a strictly this happened event, the circumstances and the things it describes are by a lot of the early church presumed to be telling of a real reality. It's not, uh, it's not metaphorical. Mm. Yeah. Like it's like, it's not particularly important if when he says Lazarus, he actually means like Lazarus, the son of Joseph, you know, who lived in Jericho five years ago. Like, like that, 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 that's not the relevant piece, but the relevant piece is the like details about the post, uh, uh, like earth life events. And what Jesus is clearly describing there is first century Jewish understanding of post-death, what that looks like. So if anything, he's at the very least describing what was adhered to by the Jews in his day based on the Old Testament. And then what was adhered to in many capacities by the early church as well. Yeah. And I've heard the argument that because he's named, that makes it more realistic. But I could also see the argument that he's named to contrast him with the unnamed rich man, which is like basically kind of part of part of the story then would be making the point that the rich man actually doesn't matter at all in the grand scheme of things. Whose name is written in the book of life. Right. Who cares? Right. The rich man died and was buried and he went to hell because he was a greedy man. Right. And Lazarus is a saint among saints right and but but so i could see it either way but i do dearly loved by our lord right yeah i do think it's interesting that that you have um i agree with you it's like it's hard to be conclusive about this but the argument holds water for me that you made because like i'm definitely that i think is more likely than the other interpretation now that you presented it because because it's not identified as a parable and like think about the other parables it's like it's farming stuff. It's um, the relationship between an employer and his employees, right? Uh, it's like, that's most of it. That's like 95% of the parables I just described. Farming and like a master and a servant and, and you know, stuff like that. Um, I guess you got like the, the 10 virgins. So right. you're preparing for the bridegroom. But it's kind of, they're Very super common generic. events in life. Common events in life. Um, they're a wedding banquet. Yeah, sort of right? the idea is you could you could copy and paste a parable to any of the cities that Jesus visits 
and people could insert their own names into the characters and have it work. Right. Everyone knows what farming's like. Everyone's pretty much been to a wedding banquet. Everyone knows who a king is. Everyone knows what the relationship between a master and a servant is. And so you read those parables and and even when we don't understand some of the details because it's not that way anymore, it's pretty obvious that what Jesus is saying is supposed to be understood you know, by his audience. Um, and this is told not to an audience, but to a specific person. That's <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah. There's a reason it's to a specific person. Yeah. And, well, and the rich man and Lazarus, um, what's the context of that one? I can't. Uh, let's look at Luke 16 here. Uh, ah. Well, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they really. So he's talking to the Pharisees, but it's not quite as it's not so specific. Um, oh, well. Well, perhaps we should get uh, Josiah to do some research on the the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus, and we can have him back on the podcast in the near future to give us all the juicy details on whether or not that is a parable or a real story. How does that sound? That sounds great. Yeah, that sounds great. And I've also, uh, I could also present my argument uh, why the parable of the rich man and Lazarus disproves all those. I went to heaven and came back and here's my story books. (laughs) <laughs> which would be very we fitting. couldn't end the episode without jeremy dunking on you know common evangelicalism <laughs> <laughs> well we, we i mean like seriously though like we that'd be very fitting with our podcast theme <laughs> yeah. but no that would be fun totally. um yeah well this is well, josiah thanks so much for my pleasure for thank you for this having me fun. on yeah yeah thank you so much for coming on this was great Well, in the immortal words of the philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. That's thejohn315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.